Would you take your Bibles and turn to Hebrews chapter 10, and our text this morning will be verses 5 through 10. We continue to probe the benefits of the new covenant, and as we consider the arguments that are being put forth here in regards to the superiority of the new covenant over the old covenant, we are seeing different angles of the same doctrine. As you read, actually, through the book of Hebrews, all the way up until the middle of chapter 10, you're having an argument for the preeminence of Christ, how the new covenant that he brings is better than the past. To think of it as if you were going to a jeweler and you asked to see a diamond, and the jeweler would show you the diamond and would turn it by angles so that you see the beauty and the fullness of the whole diamond. That is our text before us this morning in these many verses explicating the same doctrine over and over and over again, just from a different angle each time. And so this morning, we continue to look at the benefits of the new covenant. And what we have to know, and we've heard before, is the Lord has revealed himself specially by way of covenant. And a covenant is just simply an oath-bound promise. The first explicit covenant in Scripture is with Noah. That was to preserve the world and preserve the people of the world. The next covenant is a covenant with Abraham. That is to preserve a people for his own name. And then you see the Mosaic or the Sinaitic covenant. That is a law given to govern a people for his own name. And then you see the Davidic covenant And that is a covenant by which God set apart a tribe and a person through which the Messiah would come and fulfill all of the promises that we see in the Old Covenant. And in the Old Covenant, there was an expectation looking forward to the Messiah, looking forward to the Christ. And so the Hebrews would be looking forward to Christ, and when He has finally come, As we know, many rejected him. Many did not receive him. Those that he came to that were his own did not receive him. But those he did receive, he counted to be children of God. And the context of this letter here is those that initially received Christ as Savior, Hebrews, and began to look back to the Old Covenant and began to long for it as they faced suffering, as they faced persecution, as they faced the struggles of life, they sought to gain favor with God by way of holding to the Mosaic sacrifices, holding to the Mosaic codes. And so the argument of Hebrews is, why would you look back to that? It's faulty. There's something that's better that's been here, that's something that is better that has arrived. That expectation that the old covenant pointed to has now arrived in a new covenant. And so what we see this morning is we see two questions being answered. When does the new covenant begin? And then the second is, what does the new covenant offer? And so let's hear the word of God. Beginning in verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said the above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
This is the word of God, and may he bless the reading of it. You'll notice the first word here, consequently, and that word consequently is pointing us back to the first four verses. It's the consequence of the first four verses, in particular verse 4, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. So consequently... Consequently, in consequence of this fact that blood of bulls and goats cannot take away sins, consequently, in consequence of this, when Christ came, so in consequence of the Old Covenant not having uh, the ability to take away sins, the consequence of the fact that the Old Covenant was a uh, conditional covenant, if you do this, you will receive this, Consequently, when Christ came into the world, this is speaking to Christ's incarnation, when the eternally begotten Son of God became flesh, for God so loved the world that He sent His only Son, that is what it's speaking of when Christ came into the world. We have to note that the argument from the beginning of Hebrews has been that the Father has sent the Son to accomplish a plan. We've seen this over and over in chapter 1, for in particular, where it states the pre-existence of Christ, the deity of Christ. We then see that He sends His firstborn into the world, chapter 1, verse 6. So when we read these words, when Christ came into the world, is beginning to answer the question, when does the new covenant begin? Is when Christ comes into the world. Now there's something that we see here, that he came into the world, doesn't mean he was then existent for the first time, but he's pre-existent, he eternally existed, but comes into the world to bear flesh, to become man, truly man, while truly God. In one sense we see this is the incarnation, but in another sense we need to stop and worship our Lord Jesus Christ for his condescension to take on human flesh. For his condescension to come into the world, it says, Not only did he come into the physical world, but he entered into the world system and was susceptible to it as a man. That Christ would suffer pain. That would suffer persecution. That would be rejected as a man. He who was of eternity and is eternal takes on flesh and enters into the world system. And then the author tells us that when he comes into the world, the words notice, he said. So you have to ask the question, the author is telling us Christ is speaking. So who is speaking here? Christ is speaking. We're reading words that Christ spoke and said, this is what's true of me. And the words that Christ spoke are Psalm 40. In many of your Bibles, you see the quotations, and it's indented to reference, showing you it's referencing an Old Testament scripture, or it's, it's referencing something somewhere in the Old Testament. Here, it's specifically, it's referencing Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. And who speaks the word Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8? Christ. Christ looks at the Psalms and applies them to himself. Now, if you were to look at Psalm 40 and verses 6 through 8, or just look at Psalm 40, you would see that it's a psalm of David. That David was the one that that actually pinned it. But when we come back into the New Testament, the New Testament tells us it's the words of whom? It's the words of Christ. Historically, in the historical context of it, what we see is that it was a psalm of David, a lament Asking for deliverance. But when we come to the New Testament, it says He said. That is Christ speaking, verse 8, when He said above. What's amazing about the book of Hebrews is that oftentimes what you will find throughout the book of Hebrews, it will, the, when it quotes the Old Testament, and Hebrews is constantly dealing with the Old Testament as we have seen, it's preceded by the words He says which oftentimes refer to God the Father. 
Other times, like here, it says, He said is referring to the Son. And if you look at verse 15, it says, And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying. In other words, that it says the Holy Spirit says this and speaks the words of the Old Testament. And so what Hebrews makes very clear is that when we're reading the Bible, we're reading the words of our triune God. And specifically, when we read the Psalms, we're reading the words of Christ. And we have to think of the Psalms in two directions, if you will. Historically, you think of the Psalms in this way, what was David writing this for? What, what, what did David mean? What were the circumstances in which David found himself that he penned the Psalms? But then you also see the ultimate direction of the Psalms is fulfilled in Christ, and we understand them, what we would say, Christologically. So when we go to the Psalms, yes, we're reading words of David, but what we also see is that we're reading the very words of Christ. And this teaches us something very important. When we read the Old Testament, we read it in light of fulfillment in Christ. Sometimes people get that wrong. When we read the Old Testament, we see it in light of the fulfillment of Christ. Now, when Christ is speaking here, what you will notice when he begins to speak, it says, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Christ is speaking. To whom is he speaking? He's speaking to the Father. And so, if you will, in, in one sense, as Christ comes on to, into the flesh, uh, becomes a man, and enters into this world, it's the Son speaking to the Father of this eternal covenant that took place in eternity with the triune God. And Christ in His humanity, as He's speaking to the Father, is saying that He understands His mission, the mission for which the Father sent Him. And so that's how we have to understand these words. He said is the Son, Christ is speaking these words to the Father in light of His understanding of His own mission. Now what is the historical context of the psalm? Is that David was asking for rescue. And David reflects on his past. He reflects on deliverances that God has brought about throughout his whole entire life. And then in verses 6 through 8, he petitions God to deliver him, to rescue him. And he couches it under these circumstances. God, rescue me because I have been obedient to you in offering sacrifices, and I'm giving my whole life to you. That was David's argument in Psalm 40. Lord, I've been, I've been obedient, and I'm giving you my life, so rescue me. Now that's super important for understanding why Christ speaks this psalm and seeing how it relates to him. And then when Christ reads the psalms in his humanities, understand how they applied to him. And he starts off by saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. In verse 6, he says, In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. And so the mention of numerous sacrifices means this, is that we've been previously looking at that one central day of sacrifice, the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16, and now the author is moving beyond just that one single day of, of offerings and is looking to just in general the multiplicity of offerings that God required of the people. The burnt offering of morning and of evening. All of the burnt offerings, he's looking at them and compiling them all together, looking beyond just that day of atonement, and says, these you don't necessarily require. You take no pleasure in these. And again, what we're seeing as in this mention of all of these sacrifices, all of these offerings that are mentioned and all strung together here is we see the price of sin. And the price of sin is death and blood. 
And we also see that that was never actually removed. And we've emphasized this very point is the sacrificial system brought about constant death and brought about constant blood. It's very interesting. If you look at the the Latin Vulgate translation of the Bible, it's actually the word that we get our word holocaust when it's speaking of sacrifices, which is speaking of of a mass killing. That would be the Latin word for it. And because of our own connotations that we have with that word, I think it's important that we see the bloody nature of death that came in those sacrifices that God had prescribed of the people. And he says that you take no pleasure in them. You have not desired them. So what do we make of the idea of God not taking pleasure in sacrifice, not desiring them? The Lord commanded it. So how do we understand these words when it says here in the text clearly, you have not desired and you take no pleasure in them? Well, oftentimes Israel was chastised for sacrifice with an impure heart. You look at the prophets, would you, where they would say something to the effect of, would you give that to your king? Presumably the answer was no. Which means that just a perfunctory sacrifice was useless apart from obedience and a transformed heart by faith. That's just simply what it means. Sacrificial giving was to represent a devoted heart. The overflow of one's heart of gratitude towards God. What God had provided. And so it was a thanks to God. I think we must look at the and view the commandments of God in the same way. If God prescribes it, it's our thankfulness and our gratitude of heart for what the Lord has done that we respond in faithfulness to His commands. Let that sink in for a moment. It's not just, it's not just habitual or, or that we do something for the sake of doing it, but rather... Our obedience to the Lord is a response to what He has done for us. Well, many of the sacrifices, they were going to live any way they wanted. They would continue their life any way as they wanted, as long as they could just go and offer this sacrifice. And that became their mentality, and that mentality was a result of a heart that was uncircumcised. That was a result of a heart that was hardened towards God. And so what we have to see is obedience for the sake of gaining favor with God in a legalistic sense does nothing before God. Obedience for the sake of gaining favor with God is useless because that would assume that we could gain God's favor. Now that's the historical context of which we find these words. That's how David would have thought of them. But however, how do we understand these words in their fulfillment when Christ speaks them? Remember, it is Christ who speaks these words. So how do we understand Christ's application of these words of sacrifices and offerings you have not desired? In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. It's very simple, is that the father did not desire sacrifices from his son. Why? Because Christ was without sin. Christ did not have to present a sacrifice for himself, for sinfulness, because Christ was without sin. He's the eternally begotten Son of God, pure light, pure light perfection. He had no sacrifice to offer for sin. But the text teaches this, while God did not have that desire that of his son, notice what it says, but a body you have prepared for me. What is that speaking of? When the Holy Spirit overshadowed Mary, a body was formed in the womb. The Son of God came into this world through a womb, and it was prepared, that is, arranged and put together by God. And specifically, as Christ says these words, a body you have prepared for me, Christ understands them this way, a body you have prepared for me to give back. But when the Father sent His Son, He sent His Son to give His life 
as a ransom for the many. You have prepared for me a body. It was before joy that the cross was put before Christ and he marched to the cross. Now, if you were looking at Psalm 40, and you'll notice the words here, but a body you have prepared for me are not in Psalm 40. Actually, the words there are, but you have given me an open ear. And that's the text that we see in Psalm 40. But when you read the Greek Septuagint, the Greek Septuagint is simply the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. The authors of the New Testament do not quote the Hebrew Bible and the Hebrew text. They most often quote what's called the Septuagint. That's the Greek translation. And in the Greek translation, what you see is the word uh, body is changed out for ear. Or the word ear is changed out with the word body. And the New Testament almost always is quoting that Greek translation of the Bible. And so what we have to understand is that the word ear, and I, I just say this so that if you look at Psalm 40 later and you say, wait, it doesn't say body, it says ear, the ear was representative of the body. But there's something important we have to consider about this psalm. And, and, and let's go back to David for a second, because both texts are referring to the same thing. But in Psalm 40 from David, what he says, but you have given me an open ear. I just want you to hang on that for a second. It's literally, you have dug for me an ear. That's the literal Hebrew of it. You have dug for me an ear. What does that mean? The Lord worked in David so that he would be compliant. So in Psalm 40, when David is speaking of the fact that he was obedient and that he was righteous before the Lord... He doesn't take any credit for himself, but says, Lord, in essence, he says, Lord, by your grace, I have been obedient. By your grace, I have been compliant to your words. So what is the cause of any obedience that comes from anyone of the Lord? What is the cause of Christian obedience? The cause of Christian obedience is simply this, that the Lord digs an ear. You don't hear that in regular conversation too often. But think of it this way, is the Lord opens your ear to obedience. And so if anyone is obedient to the Lord, it's the result of a work of the Lord, not a work of the person. It's the result of a changed heart, a changed heart that comes by grace, a, a changed heart that God gives, where he removes a heart of stone and replaces it with a heart of flesh. And that, that is what David is saying. He is saying that the Lord has brought about a change in him. We oftentimes call this regeneration. The Old Testament called regeneration a circumcised heart. It's a work of God. It is a work that God does on the human heart. And so when David says this, he is simply saying, I am obedient because of your grace. So let me ask you, what is the cause of Christian obedience? Is God's grace. It's not our own merit. It's not our own effort. It's not our own ability to change our heart and desire good. The scriptures tell us we are dead in our sins and our trespasses and we walk in darkness and in iniquity. The scriptures very clear that we have a heart of stone. We are those stubborn, hard-necked people, but God gives us an open ear that we will now love His law, that we will now cherish His law, that we will now desire it. We are fully dependent upon His grace for any time we go without lying. 
For any time that there's not hatred uh, for our brother in our heart, any time that we're showing love to neighbor, any time we're showing love to God, it is by God's grace. We are dependent upon God's grace. That's what David was saying, and that ought to be our prayer, that we pray for God's grace that we too would be obedient. Now, from the lips of Christ, it refers to a body given for Christ in return for his obedience to the Father. That Christ was fully obedient to the Father. That Christ's greatest desire was to do the will of the Father. And again, this is that inner Trinitarian conversation, that federal agreement between the Father and the Son on behalf of a people, that the Father would give a people to his Son, and the Son would come and die for that people. I want you to notice the connection between that ear and body idea in Scripture in Isaiah chapter 50. In verses 4 through 6, we read these words, and this is a, 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 a messianic portion of Scripture where it's speaking of the Messiah. And so in Isaiah chapter 50 and verse 4, the Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Morning by morning he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught. Wonderful passage that the Father teaches the Son in his incarnation. Incomprehensible thought that the Father, morning by morning, awakens my ear to hear those who taught. Notice the result. The Lord God has opened my ear that I was not rebellious. I turn not backward. This is what the Messiah was saying. That the Father taught him, the Father opened his ear, that he was never rebellious to the, to the Father, but always walked according to the words of the Lord. And look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Through all the persecutions that the suffering servant faced, he never once was rebellious against the plan of the Father, but endured being spit upon, having his beard pulled out. He did not hide his face from his persecutors, but the Son was always obedient to the Father. Wonderful combination of these words of how we understand that idea of the ear and the body. Now, just to summarize Hebrews in 10 verses 5 through 6, Christ is speaking to the Father. And he's acknowledging that he is not being asked to offer sacrifices, but rather the Father has given him a body to sacrifice, which leads to verse 7. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. And the word then is crucial here. And the word then is going to be brought up on, in verse 9. In fact, the entire argument for the new covenant and answering that question, when did the new covenant be, begin, is, it, it, it all hinges on that word then. Because the word then is used in reference to a change of time. You think about how we use it in conversation. I went to the store, then I... You use it as an advert of a time. And it's speaking of a sequence specifically in redemptive history. It's showing us as it's going to be interpreted in the latter verses that the word then shows us a shift from old covenant into new covenant. Charles Hodge demonstrates the use of this word in his paraphrase of it. He says, Then seeing that God did not desire them, I, Christ, said, Behold, I come to do your will. That's a helpful way for us to understand the meaning of that word. Let me read it again, what Hodge says. Then seeing that God did not desire them, that is sacrifices, I, Christ, said, Behold, I come to do your will. You think of 
the Garden of Gethsemane in the anguish prior to the crucifixion, what it is that the Son of God said. We read the words, My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And again, for a second time, he went and prayed, My Father, if this cannot pass unless I drink it, your will be done. It pleased the Son to be obedient to the Father. Christ, the eternally begotten Son of God, the God-man, perfectly fulfilled the will of His Father in every way. And this is so important as we understand this inner Trinitarian conversation that's taking place. Because there was a man sent and created to represent all of mankind. His name was Adam. And Adam is the federal head of all humanity. And Adam felled. And because Adam felled, he brought all of mankind into sin. And we're only brought out of Adam by grace in Christ. So this morning as we read this text of this shift from an old covenant of works to a new covenant of grace, you're either in Adam or you're in Christ. You are either set apart in Christ or you are dead in the iniquities and trespasses of your sin walking in darkness right now. And the eternal wrath of God remains on you until you repent and turn to Christ. You are either represented by Adam or you are represented by Christ. The one who says, I have come to do your will. Adam looked at the will of the Lord and said, I would rather worship creation. And so we're either of that dust we're in Christ. He says, I have come. That is the incarnation to do your will. We, we oftentimes think when we think of Christ coming, he came to seek and save the lost. And that is a wonderful truth. And it is absolutely true. But whatever, whatever we understand of that, what we have to understand is what was behind it. What was behind the seeking and saving of the lost? Christ saying, Behold, I have come to do your will. That is the will of the Father to redeem a lost people for himself. And Hebrews then interprets Psalm 40 for us. Verse 8, When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. This is giving an explanation, that idea of no delight or pleasure in sacrifice. He's very quick to say it does not mean they were not prescribed. He makes it very clear that those those offerings and sacrifices, it says that they were according to the law, that is according to God's word. But the reason he, he gives us this is to show us that they were transitory, they were not permanent, they actually pointed to something better, something greater. Which has been the, the argument from the beginning that the, the law was not without fault. And why? Because a, a greater work was coming. And now in verse 8, I also want you to notice something that's helpful. As he quotes the above, as it says, verses, uh, verse 6, you'll notice that the ordering of the words is different. He groups all of the sacrifices together, all in one tight sentence, 
Which teaches us how we should sometimes understand the Psalms is when we see similar words in parallel lines that they're not necessarily saying different things, but are saying the same thing. And that's exactly what's being said here, is this multiplicity of sacrifices. They, they were offered according to the law, which means that God prescribed them and obedience was required. He's, he's very quick to show that. But verse 9, it says, this, and then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. What does that mean? He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And again, it all hinges on the word then at verse 9. When Christ said, I come, that is the establishment of the new covenant and the doing away with the old covenant. Christ's obedience to the Father, the fullness of His life from womb to cross to the resurrection to the ascension ushers in a new covenant. When, when exactly did that happen in the timeline of Christ? I, I, I think that when Christ says it is finished, He has accomplished all that was before Him for the Father, that the Father had given Him. And when Christ upon the cross says, it is finished, and then into your hands I commit my spirit, and Christ breathes His last, and Christ gives up His spirit, He had accomplished the will of the Father. The then signals a shift in redemptive history that shifts when Christ came. You think about this, it tells us that, that God did not delight in, in these sacrifices, though He prescribed them. Think of it this way, God doesn't delight in animals, how could He? He takes delight in His perfect Son. He takes great delight in His Son, whom He loves. And as His Son offers Himself up in this body that the Father prepared, according to the will of the Father, He ushers in a new covenant of grace, not of works. The old is gone, and because the old is gone and the new is here, the old shall never be reinstituted. The second, the better, the perfect, the good things have arrived the first and the faulty pointed to the second. But once that has arrived, we should never look back on it. And just to repeat myself, because we need to hear this over and over again, to put this in our modern context, it is simply this. Our salvation does not rest on our ability to do things to please God, to earn it, to keep it, and to maintain it. It is by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's glory alone, as described to us in God's Scripture alone. That is when the new covenant is ushered in, is when the Son says, Behold, I have come to do your will. But what does the new covenant offer? And we've seen what it offers. Is it a perfected conscience, forgiveness of sins? And the forgiveness of sins will be mentioned in the latter verses once again. But the, this morning, what we want to see is another, another angle of the diamond of the new covenant. And if we could have that light shining, it is simply this. What does the new covenant offer? It offers holiness. It offers something we don't have. It offers us something that we are not capable of. So why is the new covenant better? It makes us holy. Look at what it tells us in verse 10. And by that will, we have been sanctified. What will is that talking about? When Christ says, Behold, I have come to do your will, verse 10, and by that will, that is, by the Christ's obedience, by the Son's work, by the completion of the work that set before Him, by what Christ accomplished in His life, death, and resurrection, we have been sanctified. And so the only means by which we may be sanctified is by Christ. 
This excludes any other possible way of sanctification. I cannot sanctify myself. You cannot sanctify yourself. No one can sanctify us but God. You think from the very earliest chapters of Genesis, you see the emergence of the word holy. On the seventh day, God set it apart as holy. When he introduces himself to Moses, he tells Moses, remove your sandals from your feet, for the ground you're standing on is holy. When God calls people to himself, they get a glimpse of his holiness, they recognize their unworth, because we, intrinsically, inherently, as sons of Adam, are not holy. We're defiled. If you were to hold us up to the sun to see impurities, we would block out the sun. That's how impure we are. So it's amazing that in the New Covenant we see that we are made something we are not. We are made holy. I want you to notice this is stated as a fact. It's stated as a fact. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. It's stated as a fact, which means it cannot repeat, be repeated. It is already accomplished. We have been is speaking of a current reality to the believer. And it is through the offering of the body of Christ The bloodshed and sacrifice still took place, but it is no longer an animal. It is Jesus' body that was given. In Romans chapter 7, in verse 4, it says this, Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you who belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit to God, you also have died through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another. To be sanctified means that we're passive in what takes place. It says we have been sanctified. And and, and just to be very clear, the word sanctified just means to be set aside. And we we are passive in that. that To be set aside is if if I take my Bible and I I take it from here and I, I set it aside over here for a different use. My Bible's completely passive in that. My Bible did not grow feet and arms and walk over there, and that's our state, is that we can't move ourselves into sanctification. But it's something that God does, just like this, picking us up and setting us aside for holy use. That's what it means to be sanctified. It says that in Christ and through His body, we have been sanctified. The other place that we see that word sanctify is used in regards to to the law in chapter 9 of Hebrews, verse 13. For if the blood of goats and bulls and sprinkling of defiled persons with ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, that is, in other words, in the law, through the, the, uh, the ashes of that red heifer that would be sacrificed and burnt, and then those ashes would be set aside and held in a pot, and then used to purify something, to make it clean, cleansed, On the outward, that's what it means, is that something would be cleansed and something would be set aside. That's the use of the word here. And so what the law could only do externally in making something holy, Christ definitively does it it internally. And notice what it says, once for all. In Christ, we are set apart and made holy. And just to not be confused, this is speaking of a positional sanctification. Oftentimes when we use the word sanctification, we think of it progressively as in, I'm growing in the likeness of Christ. That's that's that process of sanctification, which is also an act of God's grace in Christ in us. 
But this word sanctification here, to say that we are sanctified, is speaking of something different than growing. It's speaking of being made something all at once. It means that we are positionally before God, we are made holy. So if we are made holy by Christ, it means this. We have a new standing before God. He counts us as holy through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. The holiness or the sanctification or the set-apartedness is directly tied to Christ himself. Think of it in the same ways as righteousness. It's not our righteousness, but it is Christ's righteousness. So why are we made holy? Because Christ imputes his righteousness to the believer that we can be called holy. Just think of the implications of that for a moment. And I said this at some point. We don't like to be called saint because we know ourselves, but yet that's what God calls you. That's what God calls you. He calls you a saint. He calls you sanctified. That means God calls you holy. Think of the implications of that. In saving us, it means this. The Lord sets us apart to use us. Anytime something was sanctified, it was set apart for a special use. So if you are called by God and in the new covenant you are sanctified, that means you've been set apart for a special use. Now think about this in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God. Great, we've been saved by God, by grace, through faith. Nothing that we did to earn it. Not as a result of work so that no one may boast. For, conclusion, why we are as workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. Which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So if you are in Christ, Christ has gifted you. Christ has set you aside for his glory and for his use. We go on to read in Ephesians that it's Christ that gifts the church with apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers for the equipping of the saints. It is Christ pouring out the gifts upon those that he has set apart for his own use. Let me ask you, how are you serving the Lord with how he has gifted you? You know, sometimes you think of a multiplicity of excuses. I would like to serve the Lord, but I don't like people. Every time I deal with someone, I have a bad experience. I'm tired of it. Or I'm not gifted. Well, hold on. What, is this, what does God say about that? God says you, you are gifted, that he gifted you himself. Not all of our gifts look the same. But perhaps if we viewed our service that we do and our weakness and dependency upon God's grace as service to the Lord, we wouldn't worry about the issue that we sometimes have with people, would we? Because our service to the Lord is service to people. And perhaps it's the Lord uses our long-suffering as a gift to minister to others. We see that this idea that Christ has given us, a, set us apart, and it's not so that we are no longer of ordinary use. You think of Christ as our example. Christ has the will of the Father set before him. And what does Christ say? Behold, I have come to do your will. We're called to imitate Christ. We're called to follow after Christ. Christ is the one whom we are to imitate And notice how Christ's ministry was marked. Christ's ministry was marked by wonderful workings of God, but it was also marked by rejection of people. It was was marked by the cross. What a wonderful encouragement that in Christ we have an elder brother that offers us grace when we experience the pain of ministry for how he has set us apart, made us holy for his purposes. 
But there's another aspect of this idea that we're set apart. If we're set apart by God, it means we're also set apart to holy living. In fact, I would say that is, that is the goal of salvation is your progressive sanctification. And why are we progressively growing in the faith is because we have been sanctified. We have been set apart. That we have been made holy. We do not rest in our holy living for the, our assurance of faith, but we recognize what Scripture tells us. What God tells us is that we are made holy. Think of Titus chapter 3, verse 8. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things, so that those who have believed in God may be careful to, vote, to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. Paul can command this of his people that he declared God had made them holy. And as a result of being made holy, they produce good works. So yes, we should be about good works. And why should we be about good works? Because we've been made holy. We've been set apart for them. God sets us apart. It's His choice. The Son equips us and designs us according to His perfect design. And so we can rest in the fact that we are designed and gifted and set apart for holy use according to God's perfect providence. Thus, all that God sets before us, He will equip us by His grace to handle. So let me just say this, is let us have contentment with where God has placed us and with how God has equipped us and how God has designed us because He is our perfect, loving Father and is kind in all His works. Let us rejoice in how we have been gifted and let us be busy about how God has gifted us. If Christ has declared you holy, you are holy. No one else can determine that but God. If you are in Christ, that is your position before a holy God, is that you are declared in Christ through the offering of His body, sanctified, set apart, holy, in Christ, imputed with His righteousness and His righteousness alone. What a merciful Savior we have that would bear flesh, that we could be set apart who are sinners. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ and the so rich of a salvation, so full and complete of a salvation that we have in him. And Father, we know that it is only by your grace that we are set apart and made holy. And we praise you. For if it wasn't for your grace, we would be all destined to hell and to face an eternity under your wrath. But you are merciful and most kind that while we were sinners, you called us. And so, Father, may we imitate the words of Christ and say, Behold, we are here to do your will. And may you give us the grace to do that. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.